वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक फ्रीडम what produces it is work a disutility how do economic and social structures promote or inhibit freedom or alienation can a certain kind of mechanical expertise be alienating is freedom a necessity for humans to survive what's the future of freedom and of social and ethical forms and might we self destruct ourselves in the long run We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Akil Bilgrami, he teaches philosophy at Columbia University. Dr. Arjun Jayadev, he is a professor of economics at Azim Premji University in Bangalore. He works on issues of distribution, power, and finance. And Professor Nidmalankshu Mukherjee. He is a former teacher of philosophy from Delhi University. So, Akil, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, are you and some of your co-philosophers more or less in agreement on what alienation is? Um, how do you think of it? Why don't we just define it for half a minute and go from there? Because that's one thing that we might have slightly different takes on and why is it important if we start thinking of freedom where would you be on that question i think it's it's very tall order to to be asked to define anything actually uh but especially a a very complex uh concept like alienation um i think lots of of thinkers over uh the centuries have defined it in very different ways mm-hmm. um how do I, you think of it um i think of of alienation as as primarily in 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 relatively abstract terms uh and and relatively general terms mm-hmm. um you know marx thought of it in relatively specific terms so because he he tied it to labor and class to, and all of that labor and uh, and the conditions of of labor in in modern societies uh one thing i would say not by way of definition but by way of uh just uh historical observation is that alienation is a modern phenomenon it's it's a phenomenon of modernity mm-hmm. that is um uh there were many flaws in pre-modern societies but i think alienation, alienation was, was never one of, one of them <laughs> uh and there there may have been worse flaws uh but but this was uh, even even a serf or a slave 
uh, did have a sense of belonging in in uh, the place where he was situated. And it's that sense of belonging that has been under threat in the modern period for one or other reason. Uh, sure. Um, Marx focused on 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 the conditions created by capitalism for a particular class. But I, my own thinking about this is to step back from these specific uh, forms of alienation and see it as a transformation of the human subject into an object. Mm -hmm. I think that is one highly general characterization of the underlying uh, malaise that we, uh, who are human subjects, I mean, uh, can under certain conditions uh, not only be treated as objects but think of ourselves uh, as as having a loss of subjectivity. And that I would say is is one defining feature of alienation. And when you say object, you mean object of? No, obviously that would depend on the context. So, well, if you uh, here's a way of putting it: if if uh, if I say something like I will do something, so I say I will do X. Sure. Uh, now that could be a a statement of what I intend to do, mm -hmm. but it could also be a prediction of what I will do. Mm -hmm. Now, when I predict I will do something, then I'm treating myself as an object. I'm treating myself as a as a product of causal tendencies, of historical tendencies, etc. Right. So, so I think of myself as an object, and when I but when I when I say I intend to do something, or if when I say I will do, if it's an intention, then I'm a subject. I'm saying I'm going to do it. I ought to do it. I should do the it. The choice is yours. Yeah. In, right. in some ways. And uh, is that where the coupling with freedom comes in? Well, you know, a lot of things are within the realm of freedom without being chosen. Uh, so, for instance, I, if I'm looking at Arjun, I, I come to have the belief that Arjun is in front of me. Right. But I didn't choose to believe it. I just believed it because my eyes were open and... and uh, it's a perceptive I, kind of so, thing. So, that, so I didn't choose to believe it, but belief is part of the realm of freedom. So, so choice is not compulsory element. Hmm. Where would you be on this, Nidmalangshu? Is there, is there something about language, for example, which you've thought about a little bit over the last many, many years, which can be a place or a ground where we try and understand what freedom might be? In, in, in more tend abstract to, terms. I tend to agree with, uh, with Akhil on the, the, the significance of the notion of agency here mm -hmm. and the significance of the notion of a subject mm -hmm. in exercising, in the ability to exercise choices. Um, I mean, classically, as you know, in... Uh, the notion of a freedom was kind of contrasted to the notion of a determinism. Right. It was thought about freedom of the will kind of thing. Well, let's set the notion of will aside. It's a problematic notion. Sure. Some notion of freedom that is kind of, in some sense, intuitively opposed to the idea of determinism. 
then that's what Akhil meant about the causality factor. Here. If right. I cause to do prediction, mm. cause to do something, not really choosing to do something, this mm. sort of happens. Mm. But uh, so the question of choice and the question of freedom are therefore very intimately related. Uh, does not mean that whatever I choose, uh, whenever I choose something, uh, I'm exercising my freedom, because there are many many choices where the choices are so optimally. Given to you, I mean, you have, you have to either do this or do that. I I want to do nothing, but I have to pick up all of them. But there is such a thing as a given. Sometimes a given. Yeah, sometimes the sets, the choice sets are so narrowly presented before you. Sure. That in exercising your choice, you're not really exercising your freedom. And the standard joke is about the Americans can be divided into two two sets: those who like Pepsi and those who like Coca-Cola. <laughs> the Americans who don't like either, you know, don't really have a place mm. in the society. So, uh, so, so the notion. The notion of freedom and the choice have to be you know, much more refined and much more, uh, you know, tuned to actual human needs. Um, but, that, but can but can we think of freedom more abstractly? Uh, yeah, one is that's to, what I'm trying to think when you introduce the topic and when Akhil responded to it. That whether we can think of freedom and alienation as kind of, you know, opposite opposites. notions of each other, as you seem to be assuming, which I think that there's a point to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe uh, one can. Um, Use the notion of alienation in a very, very, a very, very broad sense, right? Uh, to um, to demand uh, um, an exercise of freedom uh, outside of any social uh, social context. For example, sadhus exercise their freedom by simply going outside of society, okay, because they feel alienated in a human society itself in some sense. Okay? Right. I sometimes feel I am alienated. In the twentieth or the twenty-first <laughs> century, I would like to decide in the nineteenth century. Right. So my friend Arindam Chakravarti, you know, keeps saying that you know he misses Ramakrishna. So he wanted to. You know, so he feels alienated in the, in the non-Ramakrishna state of history. Okay. So, but you can you can use the notion of alienation in various ways. Okay. Um, I feel alienated in a in a in a situation where rock music is being played, kind of thing. So, but let's narrow it down to what you really want, namely the situations where the exercise of freedom, uh, in terms of um, in terms of voluntary choices or creative choices, one is not able to make. That's alienating situation. So, if you define it like that, then then it's a certain kind of unfreedom. It's it's a certain kind of coercion. If you narrowly define alienation as unfreedom. The inability to exercise voluntary choices, then, then th- that probably gives it more concrete ground to talk about. And I think that's what um, um, I think Chomsky meant in a recent lecture that he said that well, the notions of freedom and democracy used to be thought of as kind of values, uh, as uh, values, value, enlightened values or values of certain states. Something of to strive towards. But he thinks that uh, by now the situation is such. That the notions of freedom and democracy are essential for the survival of the species. Mm. Okay. Now, mm. why he's saying so, we can discuss at some point. Mm. Okay. But that, I think, the notion of a freedom has some intrinsic connection with the notion of the possibility to resist, okay, to break out of one's alienation or unfreedom in some sense. That, so at some point. During the discussion of freedom, we need to discuss the notion of resistance as well, which is the ability to say no. To not only ability to say no, but to actually uh, to make it sure that the 
that the resistance is actually actualized, mm. that actually leads to social change, leads to, to changes in the environment, to, to affect one's resistance, not just the verbal, verbalization of the, of, the, of the resistance, but the ability to act on it. So that's the exercise of freedom. That's probably essential for the survival of the species, not just an enlightened living. Right. Where are you on this, Arjun? Because at least economics is littered with all kinds of free this and free that. It's a, it's oh. a, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very struck by having this conversation with uh, you know this, this mix because um, uh, obviously of the two words that we've introduced right now, um, uh, alienation doesn't appear in modern economics anywhere. Right. Uh, although we've had long tradition, uh, let's say an alternative tradition, which has tried to understand uh, alienation in some of its forms through Marx and also a little bit in Keynes, I would say. Um, but of course, the word freedom is, uh, you know, bandied about uh, with, with uh, yeah. uh, you know, very, very easily in economics, free choice, free markets, uh, a freedom house index and so on. But so it's, it's a virtue, at least in the way you, you, well, you know, and your colleagues think of it. Virtue. It's a, what's interesting about it is that um, it's, it's if, if you will, uh, neoclassical economics or if you will, um, mainstream economics, because there's, the other traditions are more sort of heterodox traditions, uh, holds quite centrally that people are already free, right? That what they're already free, the only constraint that they have. They have to merely exercise. They're just exercising their freedoms in the market. And what you're doing in, in preventing voluntary associationism or, you know, a market is really denying their innate freedoms, which they already have. So we sort of... Um, in so there's a presumed innateness. Yes, and we've sort of, in some sense, done away with the problem uh, and then proceeded to do an analysis of society. So if you will, the normative concerns of modern economics are just quite, um, I would say, thin. It is to try to create <laughs> social arrangements mm. uh, such that people can express their innate uh, uh, preferences as yeah. best as possible. And, um, of course, uh, you know, when it comes to actually existing societies, if you tell a person, um, are you unhappy with work? Are you unhappy with your choices? Or do you feel alienated? People do have that sense. So, But it's not there in the vocabulary of economics, uh, modern economics. It's a very interesting story that we couldn't get into at some point. So how would that kind of, what would that kind of economics look? And I know it's a long-winded thing, but uh, so instead of saying exercise your preference for either Coke or Pepsi, would there be a third option or... or so it's it's a very interesting thing. I mean, like how would you how how do you analytically develop this? So because there's something wrong with the axioms itself. Yeah, I, I yeah I'll say that the axioms start from a different place. Let's let okay, okay. Uh, but mm. but um, there's been a long tradition, and mm -hmm. I think uh, we said that we wouldn't uh, maybe you know talk about Marx, but we're going to talk about Marx. Let's I talk said. about Marx. Um, uh, the the notion that he has early on somewhere he says you know that one cannot think of um, the um, labor as the abstract antithesis of effort. He says that labor is about self-realization. So the, right at the outset... You mean antithesis of leisure? Uh, of free time. Did I say... Of free time. Uh, I'm sorry, what is it? So, sure, so, sure. So, so yes, uh, of free time. And right at the uh, outset, he says um, this because he understands that in some, some sense our... Uh, power of production of self-realization is really what is is key right mm -hmm. so there's a whole tradition of trying to understand human action and human production as 
central to an economy. Right. right? And that would, that's probably what I would call the radical in the Marxian tradition. Right. Um, there is another tradition, which is a modern neoclassical tradition, which starts at the point of consumption, where that problem is already done away with. Right. Right. You have your preferences, you have your freedoms. So in that in that world, work is a disutility of sorts. Yeah, I mean, that that gives the, the game away right at the outset, right? Because right. if you start off with saying, um, all that you do in your life from nine to five is a disutility so that at five o'clock you can go and buy whatever you want to buy. It's both a dystopian view of the world, but also sort of uh, give gives away what work is seen to be and what human production is seen to be in the standard framework. So if one had sufficient leisure, would it be fair to say that you're unlikely to be alienated? Do, do you think of leisure on the opposite side of freedom? Well, if work is a form of fulfillment that uh, is makes one unalienated and in that sense re- realizes oneself, then there's a sense in which uh, leisure without work would be a threat to freedom. Um, but there are a couple of things that I think are worth, uh, small things that are worth uh, uh, clarifying mm-hmm. uh, about the discussion, interesting discussion so far. Um, you see, I think it's maybe worth distinguishing between the way in which determinism uh, in the scientific sense where uh, there's a sort of pervasive causality threatens freedom or is supposed to threaten freedom if it does and the way in which coercion threatens freedom. I think these are just very, two very different forms of threat to yeah. freedom. Certain kind of uh, negative freedom almost. Right. Coercion. So causality yeah. uh, uh, is supposed to threaten freedoms if you think that um, freedom consists in in some kind of contra-causal law, uh, so, some kind of spontaneous, uncaused... Uh, uh, which, is, which is that argument that free will and determinism exactly. are not necessarily at odds with each other. Right, that's, so that's somebody might mean, say right. that they are compatible rather than... But mm-hmm. that's one de- debate, and the, the, or one, one way in which uh, freedom is said to be threatened. But the other sense of... Uh, freedom being threatened if, if somebody uh, physically forces you to do something or right. more subtly uh, coerces <laughs> you, say, by uh, putting a gun to your head, uh, <laughs> if that's more subtle. And, and, uh, or third, you know, I mean, there can be very subtle forms of coercion, right? It's suppose you're very, very poor and desperately need money and uh, somebody bribes you when you desperately need money, you can see that as a very subtle form of coercion. Right. Um, so, so there's a spectrum from downright physical force to, to, and these are not. Uh, this is not abstract causality. This is just one one human subject or agent uh, coercing another. And that's just a different concept in in a sense, or a different set of issues. Um, but one of the questions that I had uh, that came to mind when Arjun was was talking uh, about choice, uh, say choice in in uh, in the marketplace, choice in consumption, and so on, uh, as something taken for granted about freedom, is that it's so bizarre that one says something like that, 
at the same time as one lives in a society, market society, in which desires are being created yeah. by the manipulation of advertising, advertising and, so and marketing so, and so on. So on the one hand, you say there is... There is, you know, that do you really desire what that, you desire? That, you yeah. know, there's this kind of freedom to choose uh, what to buy, say, or or, or or where to invest. And and at the same time, what to buy and where to invest is being shaped by a whole range of manipulative devices, advertising just being the most uh, talked about of these. And so But is, there, is there such a thing as a fundamental desire if there was no advertising or things of in that category or that camp well there might be agents who manipulate and create desires uh, i mean you know there's a sense in which your context or your circumstances in a way shape you mm. to what you will choose i mean if you've been brought up in a certain way you might choose one thing and in a quite different way you choose another thing but uh, th- those things are givens right they're what what are given to you by birth or by but but this and um, what I'm what advertising in all does is is that there are interests in society yeah. you know uh, yeah. which are uh, campaigning there's a there's, there's a sort of, kind of concerted campaign to, to to for for and and I find it very strange that the very same society which has fetishizes this freedom is also of choice is actually shaping <laughs> your choice by um does apps does advertising necessarily i mean in the long run with above a certain saturation point or close to saturation points create alienation oh i think that it's very interesting when you look at advertising what it's trying to do you know um uh, i i mean i'm not and you sure. saying anything original here but there was this fantastic documentary called advertising in the end of the world it was about 15 20 years old now in which they said take a look at what is actually being sold to you it's friendship it's sex that's what's being sold to you it's not the product right, right. so in some sense um where i bring this up because uh it seems very clear that whatever desires that are being sort of uh forced not for once say forced but are being are being developed in you maybe some real desires that you have but which yeah, this system is, is not is actually second order third order derivatives more importantly that this system is not equipped to um satisfy i think that's the interesting thing about it right yeah. um there's some sort of magical thinking that this is going to get you something that you desire in a different sort of society which is friendship leisure fun those kind of things i just wanted to bring up sort of follow up on one thing that akil said which i found very interesting and um there is this notion that you know um i i i'm not sure the latin is correct but there's no accounting for taste de gustibus non est disputandum i think that's right, that that's right and um i've always found that both very interesting because um it's always interesting at what point you break your analysis it gives the game away you know you break the analysis the moment you enter the firm there's no power in you don't talk about power in the firm as you enter the firm there's no analysis of the firm as you talk about uh, preferences there's no analysis of the preferences right and the reason I, you know i was bringing this up is that it's impossible to understand why something seemingly so banal as behavioral economics you know mm. wins the nobel prize and you know re- mm. uh, if you don't already believe that preferences are innate and untouched mm. right mm. um so mm. the only advance that someone can can 
uh, provide from behavioral economics is say okay, people actually their preferences are not so rational are not uh, you know, they're what systematically irrational mm. and this is considered a great advance to anybody in <laughs> economics but to absolutely nobody outside economics and i've always found bit embarrassing to think what's going to happen in this nobel prize dinner you know have you'll have kip thorn you know uh, and you'll have uh, richard thaler and i can just imagine the discussion you know what did you dis- win the nobel prize for you know i and kip thorn will say i heard two black holes colliding i de- developed something which could hear the smallest microscopic thing of he- them colliding and what did you win it for to show that, that people aren't rational you know <laughs> just this <laughs> anyway sorry that was just an aside to to say that this sort so of but nirmalang shows would it be is it in human i don't know don't know what human nature is but is it human nature to be free because i mean time and again and you know irrespective of the level at which you see it whether historical social individual psychological we kind of keep falling into all kind of traps and we kind of i don't know whether it would be wrong to say that we end up getting ourselves oppressed but is it is it a feature of human nature to be free to want to be free i know we make that supposition and it sounds totally obvious but i just want your help in unpacking that a little bit some would say that um um people sometimes call it the cartesian tradition that some notion of freedom is kind of built in to the very design of being a human mm. um maybe in terms of the some elevated sophisticated notion of consciousness maybe some notion of language maybe both together uh so for example many people including noam chomsky and other people <clears throat> they keep saying that um, what language does in the human condition is the ability to generate um possible images mm-hmm. possible worlds so it creates possibilities okay formally creates possibilities Mm-hmm. a stimulus dependent organism can only live in actualities that's a very crudely sure uh, talking about the descartes machine idea but uh, the human being because of language creates possibilities for itself okay so once you create possibilities and possibilities which seem to be rational or desirable or hopefully both at the same time are something that you you like to be realized and so that's where the question of freedom comes whether you are able to entertain these possibilities number one that's the freedom of speech and thought mm. and number two whether you are able to exercise your freedom of thought and speech to make the world different to the extent that your choices are actualized in the world that's where the freedom of action um so can we try and link this more rigorously to say that because there is such a thing as human language and let's call it just human language for now i know that one can think of it more metaphysically many qualifications it means that we must want to be free is 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 that what you're saying no many many qualifications are that's a very broad picture i made the so called mm. cartesian picture mm. many qualifications have to be done and that has to do with the distinction that akil suggested between two kinds of causality sure or, the, or maybe they are not even two notions of causality but causality and something else mm. that um question of creating possible images or possible desires can arise even in the context of uh you know real biological determinism that's been the central issue about the question of death for example 
that uh, we are kind of constrained by the very idea of being a biological entity and therefore right. a certainty of demise, a certainty of death. Okay. Right. In some ways, in some conception of freedom, that kind of throttles your freedom. So right. you create the possible possible space or a possible world in which that freedom of uh, you know transcending death also applies. So you know all sorts of metaphysical theories about your transference of soul and the other world and this and that, but the whole theory of Atman and everything that falls in place basically to exercise, create a possible world to exercise your freedom. Okay, one may or may not agree with that notion of freedom or whether. It is even sensible to talk about some notion of freedom in the case of what is biological determinism. The great paper by Thomas Nagel, for example, right. question whether it's meaningful to ask. Right. Okay. The, how do I handle the, the the constraints of death, for example? It's probably not even a meaningful question. But there are other cases where the possibilities can be created, imagined, um, where uh, it can be realized within within the world. They are not bound by any kind of biological, natural determinism, but some kind of social determinism. It is the determinism comes from social constructions of the past. Okay, so that's where the, all the exercise of freedom from slavery, from, from patriarchy, okay, from capitalism, from feudalism, whatever. So there's a certain kind of path dependence to... There's no, these are not really natural... Uh, natural uh, d- determinisms. They are kind of artificially constructed, mm. okay, maybe out of previous possible uh, possibility of desires, but they now constrain freedom. So that's why, in my view, this notion of more grounded and more, um, more socially relevant notion of freedom is linked to the idea of possibility of resistance. Mm-hmm. And that is now linked to the idea of uh, the, I think, very important distinction that um, Arjun made between production and consumption. Mm. You take production for granted mm. and, and leave the choices open for consumption. Mm. Okay. That's exactly the problem right now. That it's what you produce. Okay, you don't seem to have any choice. Kind of determined by the market. Right. Determined by profit. And determined by the corporates and big business or whatever. Okay. But the, precisely the problem in the world right, right now, on the planet, is what you produce. You are filled with unfreedom with the productions. I mean, think of the situation that we are in already in terms of the internet, in terms of the, in terms of the mobile, in terms of the, you know, so, all the other. These are, these are products, okay? We have decided to produce these things. We thought these were voluntary exercises, okay? What had, what has that led into? If I don't have a mobile, or if I don't have internet, okay, can I even survive in this world? in the way in which I wish to survive at a certain level of intellectual and spiritual and moral elevation. Either I'm thrown out of the society or I have to buy this product. I've been resisting by my personal but taste. But isn't, isn't, I mean, like, at least going back to this producer-consumer couple, there's a certain kind of codependence, isn't there? Or, or, or you... Not really. The, I mean, the, you know where I'm coming from. I mean, obviously... If you have a circuit, you'll have consumption, production for consumption. I think what, if I understand Nirmalangshu uh, correctly, and I, I would agree if, uh, with this, in some sense, production, there's two sets of paradigms. One in which uh, consumption is what drives the system, and one in which production is what drives the system. Yes. Um, it's very interesting. There's another phrase that, that's there in economics. It's, I don't know if it's used so much in 
uh, textbooks anymore the notion of consumer sovereignty mm-hmm. you know it's a very interesting phrase because when you think about it that's the argument there is that the consumer is the one who drives the system yeah. but as i totally agree with nirmalangshu it seems patently obvious that consumers don't drive the system right i mean and of course a standard as the old consumer is the king mantra right that's so. consumer is the king and uh there there's some sort of in some sense there is some truth to that in the sense that you can't survive as a firm without having some having cons- consumers but you create the consumers you know i mean that that seems to be the way that capitalism has managed throughout so i, I there were some other things that you you said but i was very struck by by this particular thing that there are a whole host of unfreedoms that come from the fact that the productive system is what what drives drives our world and not that which is trying to satisfy human needs but is there such a thing as an alienated consumer of because yes i I, is, i mean i which think which is the kind of consumer that is led or misled by advertising uh, i i because I, i think one gets the notion of the alienated labor the alienated producer very often so 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 i mean i wouldn't it's hard to use the word alienation for me in this sure, i sure, just sure. don't know as, the as i don't know the literature yeah. but i think it's it's very very clear with many many studies that uh consumption and increasing consumption does not lead to more happiness or more satisfaction in fact for many people they want to get off the treadmill yeah um there is a, a wonderful couplet of books by um the sociologist Julie Shore one is called the overworked american and the other is called the overspent american you know <laughs> and i think that both are uh nessin the overspent american is a real problem they're I mean, tearing each other out they, they they're both part of the same system but it's Ooh. also kind of very interesting to I mean I think the same thing is happening here just not at the same level but um she has some amazing statistics about how um about 3 kilograms or 4 kilograms of uh um garbage is unused clothing for households every week I'm not I I can't remember exactly the statistics that every american buys 50 to 60 units of clothing a year on average these are just i mean it's clear that they're trying to there's some sort of attempt at fulfilling some sort of um hole if you will uh i don't want to sound moralistic about this but uh i think there is something about the fact that that consumption is not sufficient and yet that's the only way in which people are are given in some societies to uh try to manage this this alienation so how does one become free Well, you know, I, uh, I, th- I think that um, here. Let me put a, a, a slightly reckless uh, proposal. Um, I think that if a subject thinks it is free, it is free. <laughs> that's so beautiful and yeah and so far as we know the human subject is the only subject who thinks it is free and and i think that is made possible by language uh by the possession of language uh so that's you know you'd asked uh, nirvana show question about what's the connection between language and freedom, freedom yes uh because on the face of it it's not obvious what the connection is but that's how i would make the connection I really do think that because we have the ability to think that we are free. Yes. And and uh, because if of we the do have to the, think if, the hypothetical. Right. If we think we are free, 
I think we are free. Or we have the possibility of being free, or you you mean that in a well sharper sense that no, to be free is to have have possibilities Fair. at all, right? So, so we shouldn't iterate the term possibility and talk about the possibility of freedom. To to be free is to have these possibilities. But I think if you ask uh, who is free, I'd say any subject who thinks it's free is is free, right? Uh, and and so far as we know, there's only one subject. Uh, I mean, I don't know what there is in outer space, but so far as we know, here the only subject is is uh, who thinks it's free is is the human subject. But it's, Akil, it's frivolous. But all of us have the capacity for language. I mean, except for all human subjects. All human subjects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All humans. Let's we'll, yeah. the whole issue of subject is somewhat technical for you. All of us have the capacity for language, but all of us are not free. So somehow, there's something. No, no, but something we, coming in the way of having that thought. We are not free in particular circumstances if we are coerced and so on and so forth. But, but we are free in the sense that we are subjects who uh, possess uh, a, a certain uh, capacity that we call freedom, which is simply not possessed in that sense by any other subject. And I'm saying the source of that is that we actually think we have it. Mm. It's sufficient. So let me, the, the reckless proposal that I was making was... It's sufficient to be able to think that you're free to be free. Yeah. To think that you're free is sufficient to be free. Right. So, and I would put it the other way around too, that if you are free, you, you know that you're free or you, you believe that you're free. Um, but co- coming back to... To Arjun's point, you see, I, I agree with all of this, but I do think that there is a sense that, it, that you know, about how desire creation can shape con- consumer choices to the point of making them unfree and, and even alienated. But, you know, there is a very interesting thing that when there is so much control on production, Right. So, so let's take this point that Arjun made about overwork. Right. It would be a much less alienated society if everybody went on half time. Right. If we just distributed work in such a way that everybody was employed and everybody did half time, uh, and then men could look after the children as much as women, and you know, it would have all sorts of of social dividends. I just want to go to Arjun on this for a second. Wouldn't our incomes be half? For all of us, of course. I mean, one is at the level of the economy, but um, is is that is that okay? The point that let's let, let him we'll get back to that. But right. I'll let you continue. So, so, so here's what I was thinking: that so, so when we have an overworked society, to, uh, yeah, to use Arjun's phrase, uh, it's very. Suppose we're against it, mm-hmm. the four of us here and other like-minded people we're against. We're pretty helpless in, in, in resisting it because you can't stop production. It's in the hands of people. We don't. But if we decided as consumers to go on strike, right. we, we could disincentivize overproduction the and therefore overwork. So there's a sense in which consumers also have the power to win there's so little control on what gets produced. You can't directly fight. But it's probably not realizable power. 
sure in the in the well i don't know i mean you know it it uh, 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 all i'm saying is that when you have yes. no influence over the producers what you're going to do lobby in washington lobby you know you're right. not going to get anywhere because capital right. just dominates uh uh the the levers of government uh right so so i'm saying the part of the reason why nader was able to get somewhere you know he didn't get very far because the democratic party's learning curve is flat and they always <laughs> screwed him but the the point is that that if he got anywhere it was because he understood that however much consumers are shaped and all they also have some power to protest when nothing else can do right. can help with with the changing things so that's something to register at least that how however much consume consumers are determined and thereby uh, are alienated and and helplessly choosing away if there is they can have a power to to shape things in to some extent anyway which they couldn't if they directly tried to stop the producers by you know i want to go back to the point that uh, akil made um nirmalangshu about having the faculty of language to think that you're free and therefore that being sufficient for you to be free where where is the linguist in you on that not so much the language factor but the thinking factor sure and i think i'll probably even go even more reckless than akil to say not 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 just that you you think you're free but the fact that you think is enough there's only one organism that thinks in a very in a very lofty sense of thinking of course which has to do with language and other things sure but if you accept that cartesian sense of thinking mm. then to think is to be free but the whole conception of resistance and unfreedom only comes to a creature which is free you can construct a possible world and you can see the actual world is not matching the possible world that's why you are unfree so the the, the freedom to construct that possible world you know utopia or whatever whatever is exactly what freedom amounts to and i think you are also right that, that is kind of given as genes almost genetically okay as part of the design what happens to lack of freedom within that design okay and that's where the notion of a resistance both the notion of freedom and the notion of resistance are products of this elemental fundamental freedom that you entertain as as a human as part of the design of the human but so, for you so that question to so that question is kind of settled we don't know the details about exactly how language works some work is coming out including my my work also in this area but you know let's not talk about the scientific details about how exactly it works it works everywhere it works in the case of music it works in the case of stone carving it works in the case of artistic design okay so it works everywhere okay so whatever is is got a palpable human sense has some notion of a possible world and that notion of a possible world is essentially due to the language it's is language that allows you to create those images mm. the basic idea is that you can basically put two consistent concepts together and if you want to more to elaborate on that there's one excellent research that's going on uh, is by a very well known psychologist called elizabeth spelke mm-hmm. liz spelke and she has shown uh, some notion of a core knowledge which is very interesting that uh, various kinds of species I, mean, i i really don't know whether the work has been done with chimpanzees Sure. but with the with the rats and other kinds of you know, pretty advanced mammalian creatures mm-hmm. it's been shown that they can process different kinds of uh, kinds of information separately like so the ability rats to discriminate rats can be trained, trained to to run mazes 
that is they recognize corners sure that information they can register probably be even better than human children sure okay there was at least one uh, experiment done some some times ago about college graduates and rats and rats did better on med salt med 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 solution because they simply have sharper acuity of vision better spatial sense okay. and so on mm. they can also be trained to locate uh, spaces in terms of the colors mm-hmm. okay individually so in a flat kind of area if you have a red area black area kind of thing so they can find the black area red area depending on the stimulus that they have been trained to respond to but they can't put the two information together the black corner they can't process that information so they cannot compose that's the thing so that's the one could argue that so that's ability the ability to compose ability to property that is simply missing in the genes so so you one could argue that uh, that uh, the basic sense of possibility to put something together out of the context so to, so to speak mm-hmm. okay therefore you can you can have you know Uh, things like you know the golden mountains or whatever your unicorns what they all possibilities putting two things disjoint things together that's right. what science is all about right okay science all about that's what most human um artistic you know high culture is all about that's what music is all about there's nothing there's no relation between why a particular you know note at some at some uh, octave should be put together with another note in some other octave and so you get a consistent sound both resonant okay that you can keep arguing okay that, that there's some combinatorial possible possibilities inherent to the human design so i think that's that's a science side of the story and you probably cannot do anything about it because that's you can't kind of design so that's kind of choice is kind of necessary a condemn to choose as some people said not with with the with the biological idea but some other idea so but within that those choices there are these stark areas on freedom even beings are not able to exercise their freedom okay and those as akil pointed out very nice there are many other societies outside the the modernist society okay their lives where the questions of alienation simply do not arise are not models for the modernist society that in which in which we live so for example the 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 recent attention that many many people are now pointing at was the you know the resistance to to the to the to the exploitation of the hills for example mineral exploitation of the hills i've written about it and many other people have written it for the niamgiri struggles take the same so these tribals you know basically hill people and uh, adivasis they resisted the the vedanta the steel manufacturer and they said uh, on they said that we simply don't don't uh, want to you know um, offend our gods there's a niamgiri god we worship we don't want the niamgiri to be destroyed because then our god will be gone so when you say belonging akil you do you mean this, would this be one of the senses in which you belong so when when we started out um you use the notion of belonging so here if the adivasis are saying something about the forests or the hilly regions what does it what mean what are they saying exactly i didn't didn't quite mention that uh, this this example to to talk about the idea the lack of alienation idea not 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 for that sure. point the point sure. about this point of resistance comes from certain knowledge or certain certain sense of belonging to the world yeah okay uh from which they are not alienated but with that kind of a world view for us will be very alienating you know to think of the mountains as gods yeah okay because that does not fit 
with our modernist conception of what high culture is, or modernist conception of what civilization is. So uh, those possibilities are not at all entertained because the choices are always given within the possibilities of essentially a corporate structure. That's the problem, and that is creating a level of of um, of um, of accumulation of garbage, to use it metaphorically, because you use the term accumulation of garbage, okay, both in thought and in material, which which is simply not sustainable on this planet. And do you think of this in structuralist ways? Like, is there something about the nature and the structure of the market that does this? Does what? Can you just clarify? So, I mean, you know, this 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 business where there is a certain kind of accumulation of things that you don't really want or maybe even need, yeah, right? I mean, certainly, I mean, of course. Um, I mean, we use the word accumulation in, in some sense. That is what is the sine qua non of capitalism, right? I mean, that is it. It if it's nothing else, it's self-expanded value, and it's trying to con- constantly create accumulation. I mean, this is old I, I kind of ideas, but it's really interesting how uh, they certainly in economics that's it's not considered a, a question anymore. You know that 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 they have the system out of control. Which is creating garbage, surplus of of all sorts that are, it's not satisfying human needs. I wanted to link that to a question that you asked about. Um, uh, in in some sense, do we have enough income, right? And yeah. The, 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 yeah. Um, so I think that um, yeah, that question the, of Akil's the, the that why why don't all of us go on half time or reduce so, work so that all of us have work? So I think there there is an economic problem of scarcity. I don't want to to deny that. Uh, also, I didn't want to deny that the fact that consumption can be actually uh, a valuable thing. I just think it's far less important in the real world compared to production. Than it's made that, out to be. Yeah, uh, but um, so uh, my my sense in this is there is really a problem of economic scarcity. But for a lot of countries and a lot of societies, we're well past that point, and it's a problem of distribution. I'm not sure, for example, in poorer economies whether we can talk about degrowth. And those kind of ideas, sure. which are which are out there, now I'm not sure. I mean, people have argued both ways. I I should I, I should uh, say that, but it seems exceedingly clear to me that uh, Akil's idea that uh, we should think of a different way of organizing societies, we're way past the uh, the levels of income in many many countries in the world where that can be real. I mean, and and I suppose there's two two or three. Proofs that I can give for that. I mean, mm-hmm. if you take if you take a comparison between, say, the French and the 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 U.S. in terms of the number of hours they spend every year, um, I always shocked my U.S. students when I told them that the French worked four hundred hours less per year, which is ten full weeks of work right. less than they did. And they inst- what they got was probably one X iPhone or Xbox, or whatever it is, which was more and. It it would always scandalize my students because they would ha- they would think that it must be the case that um, the French are much poorer than them, right? right? And it's not the case. But to come back to this question, um, there's another sort of proof that you can give that you're well past the point where uh, of scarcity, and that's um, when you take a look at recessions. Why is it that recessions are painful? It's not because you lose money; it's because you lose your your ability Jobs. to your work and your ability to maintain your social bonds and so on. And that's what's important. So I'm very much for thinking about a world in which those things are possible. Now, um, it's different in different societies. That's all I would... I would in, some, in India, for example, I think we probably do need more 
I would like to listen to Akhil more about the point he's making about the work and the notion of alienation. But I'm little confused about the notion of work here mm. because, for in my case, for example, I've always felt uh, kind of unhappy that uh, the work that I do is kind of teach and listen, write philosophy, right, and read philosophy. And uh, I've always felt unhappy that how come I'm not able to do it 24 hours a day? Okay, so, <laughs> right. so falling asleep and I had to fall asleep and feel bad about it. Okay, so right. So that's not so 24 hour of work will be very pleasurable. Right. So there is no distinction between work and labor, leisure in that, in that sense. On the other hand, if you do get half the time away from, from your work, okay, what options do you get for your leisure? Okay, so... Uh, for example, I remember. This. I mean, there could be there could be similar forces at work. Yeah, yeah. To, I, I remember that, that joke. I mean, it was one of the TV serials, I think, where, that where I, I heard the joke that there were these two FBI agents, uh-huh. okay, who always carry gun, you know, and they were chasing people, kind of thing. So they show up at uh, someone's house in the in the evening, and they wanted to arrest someone or question someone, things like that. So a conversation ensued, and they went to a pub and started drinking and all that, and. Um, and one of these kids who was being questioned asked the FBI agent, one of the agents, you guys are still working. It is nine o'clock in the nine day in the evening. You guys are still working. Okay. Yes, we have to work a lot. Now, what do you do for leisure? Do you, don't you have a leisure? Yes, we, have, we also have leisure. Now, what do you do for leisure? Well, what? We go hunting, uh, you know. <laughs> we, 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 you know, start, you know, we practice our shooting. We do all these things. So that's leisure. Right. For the FBI agent. Right. Now, whether it is done voluntarily or non-voluntarily, the question is becomes kind of moot in this case because the choices offered are so restricted in terms of what is leisure. So the question is really what you have raised. Please. I think the yeah. question of alienation. Yeah, I think so the question is: Is it a is non-alienating work? Whether we can, whether we are, some of us or most of us are being made to work in a bonded kind of way. Now, whether or not we are serfs is another matter. Obviously, we don't have slavery in the traditional sense but is there something about capitalistic machinery that somehow perpetuates a certain kind of bondage yes i think that i think is, that that is the the main concern right that i totally agree that the um that work or effort itself is not the issue it's i mean mm. in fact we would like to put in more effort into the kind of things that give us the possibility to expand our, our own capacities, our social bonds, and so on. Uh, it is the fact that that is done. The work is done without an attempt to think about human needs outside of just consumption. Is that that's that is the issue, and I think that that is the the, the central problem of uh, capitalism or capitalist societies, um, that or in fact any society in which basically production is done fundamentally. Uh, outside the control of the people who are producing it, outside their sort of needs and desires. Interesting. Like to learn from Akhil about um, which notion of freedom uh, is at issue here. Now that we are coming to the end of the discussion, I mean the notion of liberty. For uh, which notion of liberty mm. is at issue when we are talking about alienation? Because obviously they cannot Just be like absolute. Just like the notion of freedom, freedom has been misused, right. so to speak. Okay. I mean, I remember still uh, that this gory sentence that when that uh, 9-11 thing happened, mm-hmm. and he, they showed uh, George Bush uh, sitting in some school or something, and he, then he was told about the attack. And uh, the first thing he went on air and said, 
freedom has been attacked. Right. Okay. George Bush saying this. Okay. So, right. the, so notions of freedom can also be propagandized if you want. Right. So similarly, which notion of liberty will be the functional one or the morally valid one in terms of this, uh, you know, this huge alienation that the humankind currently faces? I would like to know because I think there's you know, tremendous amount of confusion about the idea of liberty. Where would you be on that, Akhil? Is it a truism that there's a trade-off between equality and liberty? Is that something that you take for granted? And I know we are in the somewhat non-abstract Well, it, I, I think in setting. the last 300 years of, of, of Western uh, capitalist uh, modernity, the uh, liberty and equality have been pitted against each other, even though there's a commitment, supposed commitment to both. Can I just go back for cup to a couple of things which were very interesting? Uh, one thing that Nirmalanksha um, said and one thing that Arjun said. Sure. Um, you know, this idea of thought uh, and its relation to freedom, just the very fact of thought, it's what's interesting to me is um, to to try and think about what it is about thought uh, which makes us think it by itself is a symptom of or sign of freedom. See, imagine the following: imagine a subject who is completely passive superlatively passive. I don't know if any of you have read a, a novel by Goncharov, a Russian novelist called Oblomov. It's about a guy who never gets out of bed. He's just, you know, just lying in bed and he's depressed. He just, just doesn't move. Now, it, now, Goncharov is not a philosopher, but let's make it a philosopher's <laughs> passivity, right? So, so he, he thinks the future is just like the past. So why act? It's all laid out, right? It's all laid out. The past is laid out, but he thinks the future is all laid out. So he just so what's the point? <laughs> right? So he's just lying there. Right? Uh, now, the thing is, if one says thought is is sufficient for freedom, then we have to say this subject doesn't think, right? It doesn't have agency. But but the point is. Suppose his thoughts just happen to him, right? He doesn't put things together. Things get put together for as a happenstance to him, yeah. right? So, so he doesn't think two uh, plus two equals four. He doesn't think there is a, a horse with a horn, or uh, you know, in its forehead, or anything. The thought assails him, right? That there's a thought impinges on him, right? So, so the point is. When we say, if all our thoughts assail us and we don't think them, but they happen to us. Yeah. You're getting the distinction? Yes, right? absolutely. We don't think them, but they just occur to us. Or they We're happen the recipient to us. of those thoughts. Then, we have to, if all our thoughts are like that, yeah. then we are going to have to say, they're not really thoughts. Then we're not really free. Right. So, what is it about thoughts that they can't be comprehensively, superlatively, 
happening to us passively? That's that's the question we have to ask. There's something in the nature of thought that they can't, in every single case of a thought, be happening to us. We must think them. So thinking versus thought. Thinking is an active. Thinking. It's an activity. Yes. Right. But with what right do we say that is the question? I think that is the most underlying uh, question to to ask. Why are we not Oblomovs in yeah. this superlatively passive sense? So, so that's that's just a question. I'm, I'm not saying, uh, uh, and that's why I rely on the slogan. Well, if. If the thought occurs to me that I'm an agent, then it's not occurring to me. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking it. Uh, but I want to move to the the other thing, which was very fascinating about, uh, uh, and this is more in the political and economic realm, and not so abstract. See, Arjun talked about some Western European societies in which people work much less than they do, say, in England or America, and have the same utility. Hmm? And have the same utility, and have, have the same surplus. Right. But you see, what's interesting is that Anglo-American capitalism, right, thinks of, of high Western Europe capitalism as pampering its working classes. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's, there's, there's one kind of, of, of capitalism, which they is don't very, much, very much present in, in Anglo-American capitalism. And I don't just mean Republican right-wing or, or Margaret Thatcher. I mean... Tony Blair, who's sure. a, a perfect example of this kind of thing, uh, of Anglo-American capitalism, as was Bill Clinton, uh, right. right? I mean, the, the monstrosity of Reagan and Thatcher is really that they created the monstrosities of, of Blair and, and Clinton. So, 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 so there is one kind of capitalism which has been dominant in shaping the world in many ways, which is completely scornful of the kinds of, of uh, things that we are describing here as... So they as, don't envy the French. They look down upon them. No, but in fact, if you, if you try and ask why NATO is pushing at the Russian borders mm. right now, I mean, it's mostly Anglo-American uh, elements in NATO that are doing it. And the reason they're doing it is because they want labor. They want a form of labor that is not like the Western European form of labor. You know, they want it in Eastern Europe. They're pushing in those frontiers because they want... They want a form of labor. They think Western Europe has pampered its its working force. So they want to, uh, you know, the uh, so so it's not obvious always that that capitalism will allow us to to think because this has now become the dominant strand in capitalism, and and I think ca- capitalism is fighting this uh, thing because saying it's not productive. It's you know it's uh, it's it's pampering the working classes. It's a it's a um, I mean, Germany and France and so on are considered as overprivileging their their labor force. Fair enough. What's the future, Akil? Why don't we end with that? What's the future of this question? What do you worry about? What do you? What's the what's the doubt in your head? Well, I in this context, I I, I, I really do think that, um, and it, it it was surfaced in things that Nirvalangshu uh, said, and also implicitly in what Arjun said. You know, I. Uh, when you ask about what's the future, I think what is sort of really one of the most remarkable uh, features of of uh, of our societies is that there is no voc- I mean, forget about no options. There's no vocabulary 
that we don't even have a vocabulary by which to resist this. I mean, in the political zeitgeist, in the political culture. I don't mean some marginal sure. f- professors who, who write about it. I'm, I'm talking about about the, the political in the culture zeitgeist. and zeitgeist that, that sure. in which thinking is, you know, or, ordinary people and the public thinks. We don't have, there's no, I mean, I think partly part of the reason why people vote for semi-fascist leaders and so on is because they think the whole system, or by working people, uh, is because they think the whole system is so rigged there's no vocabulary by which to penetrate it, criticize it, and so on. So they, ju- it can only be they, they think away. the game is rigged. So let's kick the game board into the air and vote for fascists if necessary. So, so uh, well, let me put it this way. I mean, I think, I think given the conceptual resources ordinary people have, they can actually find it easier to conceive the end of the world than to conceive the end of capitalism. <laughs> I, I really do mean that. You know, I mean, they, 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 is, they, they have no idea what it would be. But do they Look, even desire uh, the end of capitalism? They don't, right? Well, but that's part of what I mean. Yes. Part of it is... They have, Even the conception no, of it as a possible... They don't have a conception of it. They are so deeply dissatisfied. They're so deeply alienated. They're so deep... I mean, working people voted for these... Sure. But they, they, so they, they have tremendous dis- dissatisfaction, right? But they have so, no critical vocabulary by which to... So, so I think they're just kicking the whole... But we are all on the planet together, Akil. So what are we going to do? We're going to self-destruct? Just, just. All I'm saying is that we don't. We have been deprived of, and I think this is true of, of the political establishment, whether it's liberal or conservative or anything. We just, um, yeah, we, we just we, you know, it's the end of history in a way. But we don't have any idea how to, to, put an end to this. We can actually take climate change, right? Take climate change. You, somebody like Morales walked up Bolivia, walked out of, of Copenhagen because he said, look, I've you, been sitting here for two days. You don't get it. And you don't get, you just don't get the <laughs> fact that you're never going to solve this problem if you don't recognize that the real source of the problem is capitalism. This has not come up once, he said. And he, and he walked out. He just said, but it never emerged in three days of talk that this was the source of the problem. Now, these are the very people who abuse the climate change deniers. Yeah. Right? But if it's an, just a simple fact that you can never overcome the crisis of climate change unless you actually put serious constraints on capital, which might even have to end capital in order to, to save the planet, right? Cap- capitalism. I don't know who's worse. If if somebody den- if if there's a proposition if p then q, and somebody denies p, i.e. climate change, they're sort of mad when they deny it. But if somebody denies if p then q, which is that if you're going to solve this, you must, uh, uh, you know, put a threat to capital. Itself, yes, okay. you don't, I don't know who's more irrational. You recognize the problem and you don't recognize the only solution to it. Why are you less irrational than the person who denies that there's a problem? Uh, you know, so so there's a real issue here that we are, 
in a situation where nobody says what needs to be said. So no wonder people are going fascist, they're going all sorts of things. We just don't have a discourse by which to understand and critique what is the most fundamental source of the problems we face. So will we self-destruct ourselves? Well, you know, philosophers for 2,000 years have said we, we, uh, the main question is what ought we to do? I think the, you can't answer that question without asking what ought we to know? Yeah. And we don't know what we're supposed to know. We don't have the concepts by which to understand and criticize the, uh, the problems we face. That's why we do irrational things. Arjun, over to you, your territory. What's the future? I mean, would, would, you, would, you, would you be on the same or similar or adjacent or neighboring pages with Akhil on it being almost necessary to end capital to I mean, save ourselves almost? Certainly capital as we know it. I think there's no, there is absolutely no way, there's absolutely no way that you could get, um, continue endless accumulation and, uh, you know, and have any any sense of, of a planet which is can can survive. I think we all know that. Um, I agree that we don't have any reasonable template about how to go about it. I feel maybe slightly more... But isn't that more, the definition of a crisis? That's what crisis is supposed to be like. I mean, you... The well, you know, the, it was interesting because the crisis of the 30s, the other uh, big sort of fi- crisis, the problem was not really the problem of, um, say, the end of the planet. It was the problem of mass unemployment, which had, and, and of course, the destruction of civilizations and all that follows from that. But there was, if you will, a solution, which was the state, right? So the state managed this kind of thing. I don't think we have that equivalent right now. Uh, my, maybe I'm, I'm, clutching at straws here. But, you know, I also think that there is this sort of breaking through of people who are asking questions, just like uh, we can take Bernie Sanders as one example. You can see all across Europe, there have been these sort of pockets of people who have been thinking extremely vocally and clearly about the problems that we face. I think in India, we're not there for multiple reasons. Uh, you know, maybe we were there in the past. I have no idea what, how to think about it in sure, India. That's fine. But, uh, but, so but maybe... The, the, but Arjun, it's the Democratic Party yes, which, so, which stopped Sanders. I agree. So, I mean, I'm not saying... I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not the right-wing conservatives. Okay. It's the Democratic Party which undermined its own, one of its own candidates. I, that's but, okay, okay. Yeah. So, uh, it's the political we'll, we'll class and the political establishment just doesn't allow this to permeate into... The, into the political zeitgeist. But then maybe, let's see with Corbyn, you know, possibly. We, I, 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 I feel, maybe I, I agree, potentially I'm clutching at straws here, but I do feel like there are people who are willing to talk about things in a way that people are listening, especially young people that I hadn't seen 10 years ago. Maybe Occupy was the beginning of that. So, so What's the future, Nirmalangsha? We'll end with that. Future of alienation, the future of being free, yeah, the, the sense, future of sense of being human—that's the basic core of the whole solution. I uh, struck by the example that Akhil gave about um, this person was tied to his bed, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, because he thought the he just future, lay in future, bed. He was future, not even tired. There was no future coercion. was just like the past. Okay, that's a great thought. <laughs> the only human beings can come up with this thought. You know, all determinists are like that. I mean, I remember Daniel Dennett, a great philosopher who actually claimed that all these songs, all these operas, all these sciences are just molecular machinery. 
Okay, and he actually says that in his consciousness book. So, I mean, it's possible for only humans to think that the future is like the past and tie oneself up. Okay, so that's possible. So that's exactly the case where the free individual is not exercising its huge, you can almost exercise. God-given, God-given, you know, property of being free to the proper, uh, you know, human end or civilization. No, no, but Nirmal, the thought that uh, uh, the future is just like the past is also occurring to the person. It's just happening to the person. He's That's the idea. The idea yeah, is yeah. all thoughts. See, my, my, my point was, it's not as if that thought is an exception not to, 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 to that. To imagine that is happening as if it's happening is also I think I think Ashil's point is that he is not imagining it's occurring. No, to he's, it's, it's, it's I'm saying that, uh, no, it's not as if you disagreed. All I'm saying is that this thought experiment of mine is a way of pointing out if all our thoughts, including the one that the future is like the past, if all our thoughts occur to one, they aren't really thoughts. Sure. That's the lesson I want us to learn. So we are agreed, right? But See, all I'm saying is… sense of unfreedom, yeah. propaganda for example, can lead us to that state. It can lead us to a state where they are, we are not really exercising the, you know, the genetically given freedom. We are simply reacting or simply absorbing the thought given to us. Okay. Instead of occurring, it's been given to us. So and then that we, to, we end with this. What's but the point is, you know, the exercise of freedom is also a responsibility. One is given some property and one has to be responsible to exercise it. One may not exercise it. Because this idea about, you know, that uh, there is nothing but capitalism. So it's it's an old idea. I mean, I remember in the, in the 50s, they, they used to say with the Bolshevik thing and the Chinese thing happened, you know, it's better dead than red kind of thing. And then lots of people do believe that. That's been given to them. Thoughts just happen to them. Thoughts occur to them. Lots of the working masses are like that. They have become zombies in terms of the possibility of their thing. But they're not, they don't cease to be humans. They still cease to be the free angels that the evolution has, has produced. They are simply not exercising their angelhood. And one thing, there, the problem is there, that which dominant culture hegemonizes all possible thinking? This but, is what I, what I meant by the, by the Niamhuri example. That those examples are, that's, that's where my hope lies. It won't happen. But things turn, Nirmalangshu. Not just, uh, they will turn under certain kind of pressures generated by the rest of humanity. So things happening in Latin America, things are beginning to happen in Europe. Lots of things are happening. You remember Greece, you remember Spain, you remember Portugal, you know, things are happening. Things are happening in Niamgari. Okay, that's the source. That the, the opposition to the capitalist corporate world that one kind of human thinking has designed can be challenged. And challenged to lead to you know, slow withdrawal of capitalism from these sectors. Okay, how? I don't know. I'm sure. not even recommending a blueprint. Sure. Okay, whatever. But the point is, resistance is the source of all this. Sure. And resistance is happening. Is happening. And much of the resistance is just classical. See what happened in India. Three years ago, three years ago, 14, 2014, we didn't think that things will change, turn around so rapidly. 
We thought it's 10 years. Ram Chandra Guha wrote an article. For 10, 15 years, this BJP Narendra Modi is going to rule. In three years. The worker, working class seized Delhi for three days. 50,000 peasants rallied in one place. Rapid is happening rapidly. That's where the, the change comes from. That's what the future is. Thanks. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.